Welcome, everyone. Um, welcome, Chancellor. Welcome, Minister. Welcome, honoured guests. It is a great pleasure to have you all here at St. Anthony's. And I will send an apology to the people standing outside in the rain. But you have, I'm afraid, Minister, attracted a crowd worthy of a rock concert. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And, and we're very pleased to welcome you here. I'm the warden of St. Anthony's College, which is the most international college at Oxford University. Our students and our fellows come from, I think, 78 different countries. And we have strong links with many parts of the world, including, of course, Germany. This college has always had a very strong relationship with Germany. It has welcomed German scholars here over the years, and many of our students have come from Germany and have gone back to become um, leading figures in German universities, the German media, German business, and German politics. Just last year, we were very pleased to make Dr. Jürgen Koch an honorary fellow of this college, strengthening again the links with Germany, of which we are very proud. It's a great pleasure to have you here today, and I'm going to ask Dr. Othon Anastasakis, who is the director of the European Studies Center, to introduce our chancellor. Thank you, Margaret. Um, my name is Othon Anastasakis, and I'm the director of the European Studies Center. And on behalf of my colleagues, uh, governing body fellows of the European Studies Center, I would like to welcome you to the 2012-2013 ESC Annual Lecture. The Annual Lecture is our most prestigious annual event, and we invite eminent personalities from the academic or the policy-making community. In the past, we've hosted the Prime Ministers of Britain, Spain, Turkey, as well as foreign ministers from Germany, Greece, and EU senior figures to deliver our keynote lecture. This year, we are very privileged to host as a speaker, Dr. Wolfgang Schäuble. German Federal Minister of Finance to deliver his talk on Europe still a common vision. Dr. Schäuble is a well-known political personality all across the globe, one of the most prominent politicians in Europe and committed Europeanists, and one of the key actors in the current period of the Eurozone crisis. This is the second time, I believe, as a speaker with our center. The previous time, as leader of the German Christian Democrats, he delivered one of the annual Konrad Adenauer lectures on why the nation is safe in Europe. <laughs> Just a few words, if I may, regarding the European Studies Center, which was established in 1976. Since then, it is dedicated to the interdisciplinary study of Europe, its regions, and countries. It has particular strengths in politics, history, international relations, political economy in the field of social sciences, and in cooperation with the field of humanities. The study of Germany has been one of our core subjects, and our center has kept close links with German academic institutions, think tanks, and foundations. As part of St. Anthony's College, we follow the tradition of keeping close links with academia and the policy world, which we do in the context of research projects, seminar series, research regional programs, and lectures on different matters that deal with Europe's internal developments and Europe's role in the world. This term, for example, our core seminar series is dedicated to the European crisis, which we would organize in the form of debates every Tuesday at 5 p.m., where we discuss the impact of the current crisis in the Eurozone from a political, economic, social, or political cultural perspectives. Today, we're also very fortunate to have with us the Chancellor of the University of Oxford, Chris Patton, the patron of the European Studies Center, 
who, as we all know, is somebody who cares deeply about Europe, its present and its future. We are very privileged that our Chancellor, at least once a year, agrees to chair one of our major ESC events and interact with our keynote speakers and our audiences. This year he has very warmly agreed to chair this event and to coordinate our question and answer session. Before I ask the Chancellor to present our speaker for tonight, I would like to thank all those who were involved in the organization of this very prestigious event, and especially Dr. Dorian Singh, who has been the real engine of this year's ESC annual lecture. Dear colleagues and friends, I hope you will enjoy our annual lecture tonight. Our speaker has agreed to talk for approximately 30 minutes. Then we can open the lecture to questions and answers. The lecture will be video recorded and posted on the web, but not the question and answer session, which would only uh, tape recorded um, and not video anymore. Thank you very much. I don't uh, intend to reintroduce um, our speaker because um, he will certainly know who he is. <laughs> and uh, if he didn't already, he will now. Um, I, I would just like to uh, say what a privilege and honour it is for us to welcome you, Minister, to uh, Oxford and to the European Studies Centre at St Anthony's. St Anthony's is, of course, as the warden pointed out, um, a, uh, an academy of serious study, but even St Anthony's will have been surprised to discover that the future of the Eurozone is more popular as a subject than a, uh, a gig by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so um, uh, the importance of <coughs> what we know you have to say and your own uh, intellectual distinction um, have uh, ensured that this is um, a packed house. Um, everyone here knows that you, Minister, have been at the centre of some of the most important uh, debates, some of the most important history uh, made in Europe in the last few years. Uh, at the heart of an important debate about the relationship between the defence of civil liberties and the defence of pluralist democracies against violent assault. Uh, at the centre of the reunification of Germany, um, which is one of the certainly most important events in my lifetime, uh, an event uh, carried through peacefully um, and with the um, establishment of a solid democracy. Uh, and today, uh, you're at the very heart of the uh, discussions about how the Eurozone may be saved, and I noticed you said in a speech last week um, that uh, the game is far from over, um, and because um, of the central importance of that issue, you're also at the heart of the debate about what the European Union um, will look like and will be uh, in the future. Uh, what is the narrative of the European Union and how will whatever develops in the 21st century um, relate to our democratic institutions in, in Europe. So we are really honoured, as I said, to have you with us today and I'd like to invite you to speak to us and then um, uh, uh, deal um, magnificently with the 
Thank you very much, Chancellor. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to speak to you today about Europe. Maybe so very few people who could not join this room will uh, listen to the first few words and then they will be happy not to have joined this room. <laughs> but having said this, I would say I, it's a sign of hope for me that so many young people are so interested in European uh, matters, uh, even in uh, St. Anthony's, and I take it as a sign of hope. Uh, but by the way, few other places would seem as appropriate for a lecture on Europe as Britain's foremost place of learning. Was it not Sir Winston Churchill who first sketched the concept of the United Europe? And where else in the EU today does the subject of Europe raise as much passions as in the UK? Where else does it occupy a similarly privileged place across the national media? <laughs> there was a time, I was told, when the owner of a celebrated hotel advised his staff not to mention the war to their German guests. <laughs> Today, Basil Fawlty might well instruct them instead, don't mention the Euro. <laughs> Over the centuries, the bonds between European nations have not always been equally strong. Our relationships have sometimes been warm, sometimes less so, and the 20th century certainly was no exception in this regard. But a sense of community between the peoples of Europe always prevailed. During the continent's tumultuous history, Britain and Oxford in particular often became safe havens for continental refugees. Periods of crisis on the European continent have therefore often made your country more European. London was perhaps never as French as during the years following the French Revolution. And British resilience in the face of totalitarian evil throughout the 20th centuries and its willingness to permit the immigration of thousands of refugees from the continent made Oxford in the mid-20th century a more European place than it had ever been before. In Oxford, we cannot fail to perceive that our past is European. The question before us is, what does this mean for our future? I do not mean to be overly dramatic. We do not face a return to the hostilities that have plagued our nations for centuries. The media like to describe today's political disagreements between <coughs> European countries in stark language. In my view, the debates we have seen over the last two years demonstrate, if anything, the substantial strength European integration has reached over the years. We disagree, we argue, we criticize, but this is how politics works. <coughs> Within all democracies, we have learned to accept that the society's willingness to allow the public confrontation over divergent issues is a sign of its health. In the present crisis, we deal with serious issues and with conflicting interests. We cannot be surprised that oppositions are clearly articulated. What is remarkable is that confrontational and aggressive nationalisms is almost entirely limited to very small fringes of European societies. But if, it, but if it is the case that Europe is not confronted with a potential return to a political ice age between its nations, 
it's nevertheless true that we face fundamental and difficult decisions. These decisions do not only concern the details of the EU budget or the European stability mechanism, important as those are. They are not even just limited to the issue of the common currency. At the most fundamental level, Europe today needs to regain its compass. It must be clear about its future direction of travel. My impression is that over the last few years, partly as a result of the financial crisis, differences have emerged over our very idea for the future of European integration. My view is that agreement on this idea matters. Once we know where we want to go, we can productively and fruitfully disagree on many points of detail. But if we cannot find common ground on the broad vision we have for the European project, it will be increasingly difficult to come to terms with the practical problems we face on an everyday level. When European integration began after the horrors of World War II, its political founders were clear that their project was more than the creation of a free trade zone. They were determined to lay the foundation of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe, as the treatise of Roman famously put it. What has today become of this prospect? I see two very different answers. The first of them looks back to the 60 years of post-war European integration as a story of principled success and progress. It highlights how throughout the different phases of the EU's history many areas of economic, political and social life have converged. People today travel across much of continental Europe without border controls. They pay, they pay in many of these countries with the same currency. The goods they buy are regulated by competition and environmental laws, many of which apply across the 27 current member states of the EU. The award of the Nobel Peace Prize of the EU this year recognizes the Union's remarkable achievement in giving our once war-torn continent in the longest area of peacetime and cooperation in its turbulent history and making Europe a major world player in its own right. From this point of view, the idea of an ever closer union between European peoples has been the model correctly describing the direction of travel the countries of Europe have taken over the last couple of decades. In fact, it continues to describe that direction insofar as the union of the peoples of Europe remains an unfinished project. Whatever the precise description of its goal, the European Union still moves towards an ever closer union of its member states. Those like myself who share this perception of the European project are by no means blind to the many weaknesses that have slowed its progresses. We acknowledge that legal standardizations across nations have at times been created by a bureaucracy that often seems remote and detached from the concerns of the people even tough, tough Eurocrats have also become a convenient scapegoat for national politicians who often bear much of the responsibility for suboptimal decision making. We recognize that the need to find a compromise solution palatable to all member states has often turned grand political ambitions into pity negotiations about bargains, subsidies or rebates benefiting individual countries. We are well aware of the fact 
that the European project is still, and perhaps increasingly, detached from the reality of most European citizens. We have no European public to speak to. In spite of political institutions that represent Europe's citizens, interest in their work and even basic familiarity with their functioning is not widespread within the EU. Last, but certainly not least, we are faced with a serious monetary crisis which, if it cannot be contained, threatens to undermine the very idea of European integration. All these difficulties, however, do not vitiate against the general validity of European integration. Politics, as Bismarck famously remarked, is the art of the possible. The politician will always face difficulties in the project he seeks to accomplish. He has to accept that what we can achieve will never ever even come close to what he ideally would have hoped to achieve. This is political reality, whether we look at the governance of small regions, of nation states, or at the European level. This, in very broad strokes, is one vision of Europe. I believe it's still valid and, in fact, politically the most helpful, the most forward-looking, the most promising vision we have. I speak here today to defend this vision and to argue that recent events are misconstrued if taken to demand the abolition of the goal of European integration. However, I am fully aware that for some, this has ceased to be a realistic objective at least in the short term. In recent years there has been, across Europe, a growing chorus of skeptics who, for very different reasons, have lost faith in the European project. They too look back to the early years after the war, but their story is a very different one. According to this account, European integration was a good idea, as long as it was clearly limited to goals that could realistically be achieved creating a single market, for example, opening Europe to the free movement of goods and of people, thus creating a highly competitive free trade zone while leaving sovereignty unambiguously with national parliaments and governments. The project was derailed, according to this reading of our history, when European politicians ceased to distinguish the politically desirable from the pragmatically feasible. The massive complications inevitably arising from the attempted economic and political integration of a growing number of increasingly diverse nation-states were ignored, so the theory, by those blinded by the grand design of a future united Europe. But has history not taught us that such a design is unlikely to work? Have there not been successive historical attempts to overcome the territorial and political diversity of Europe in the interest of the, its global competitiveness and have they not all failed the test of practicability? From Charlemagne to Napoleon, such projects ended in failure because the peoples of Europe cherished their independence and refused to exchange it for the promised blessings of a European state. It's no coincidence that advocates of these views cite the introduction of the Euro as major evidence supporting their theory. After all, the financial crisis has thrown doubt about the merits of the European project within the EU and beyond. And nobody can or would deny that this crisis has exposed the fundamental flaw within the original design of the currency union. 
We introduce the common currency within a community of nation states that still retain their full budgetary sovereignty. We thus had a common currency, but no fiscal union, no supranational control over national budgets, and no European regulation of banks. No wonder a serious financial crisis stretched these systems to breaking point. The critics are right, in my view, to warn that European integration can very easily turn from a pragmatic political venture into an ideological project that is pursued without proper regard for its chance of success. They are also justified in their worry that decisions taken far away from those who are most affected by them easily become abstract and effective, ineffective. A fundamental principle of Germany's political and legal system is the principle of subsidiarity. It demands that decisions must always be taken at the lowest possible level. Don't let the central government decide what can reasonably be decided by local communities or at, a, at the regional level. From our point of view, Europe should stick to the subsidiarity principle. Its responsibilities should be restricted <coughs> to those that cannot sensibly be fulfilled at the national or the regional or the local level. Vigilance is needed here, but the same is true within many exi existing nation states. A tendency needlessly to centralize power is certainly not a special problem of the EU. I strongly disagree, however, with the claim that any of these shortcomings necessitates a fundamental revision of the aims of the European integration. On the contrary, we need integration. In fact, I think we need more integration in, in order to overcome existing problems. The difficulties the single currency has faced during the financial crisis have not invalidated the reasons that originally justified its introduction. In many ways, the euro has been remarkably successful. Given how many obituaries were prematurely written for it, it continues to exist. Its exchange rate exchange the dollar, the pound and other major currencies is stable. Inflation in the Eurozone has been low throughout the currency's existence. By the way, lower compared to the inflation rate in, in times of Deutschmark in Federal Germany. Nor has the currency union lost any of its members. If I am not mistaken, the voices of those predicting this imminent exit of one or more countries from Southern Europe have recently become much quieter. By the way, the last poll in Germany shows a majority in favor of not leaving Greece, Greece not leaving as a Eurozone. That is new in, in German polls, but it has been the fact uh, in, the, in, in uh, last week. Indeed, the crisis has forced the countries that make up the Eurozone to confront the initial shortcomings of the currency union, and we are in the middle of a successful effort to improve them. We have introduced bailout mechanisms. We have created the ESM. We are moving towards a closer coordination of fiscal policies across the Eurozone. We are on the way to create a stability union for public finances. The Stability and Growth Pact has been strengthened. We introduced a balanced budget rule in the preventive arm. There is now a much larger focus on debt reduction. 
for members of the Eurozone that do not comply, a sanction mechanism is in place. And we made these instruments more credible by introducing high hurdles for the Council to block a proposal from the Commission. Not long ago, much of this would have been unthinkable. Far from undoing the European project, the crisis is helping to advance it. Admittedly, the crisis is not over, and no one knows what challenges might lay ahead. But I would predict that when Europe emerges from the crisis, it will emerge stronger and more unified than before. It will not only have retained its common currency, but will have improved existing mechanisms to protect it and make it work. Why is this happening? I think the fundamental answer is that Europeans are working to protect the current state of European integration, including the common currency, because they recognize that it has brought them and continues to bring them enormous benefits. Lincoln famously, famously said that you can fool all the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. Even at the height of the Greek crisis, support for the euro in the country was still at 80%. The same, I am convinced, is fundamentally the case across the eurozone, and there is a reason for this. Businesses in the Euro's countries enjoy a huge market with 330 million consumers in 17 countries. 40% of German exports, for example, go to the Eurozone, but perhaps more importantly, of the exports that leave the currency area, 60% are denominated in Euros. This is the advantage of operating with a major currency, and especially small and medium-sized companies are perfectly aware of it. There are, also, there are also indications that the common currency is good for growth. A McKinsey study earlier this year found that being a member of the Eurozone increased the Finnish GDP by 6.7% in 2010, the German GDP by 66 and the Austrian GDP by 7.8%. Contrary to what its opponents claim, the major steps of European unification, including the introduction of the euro, were not driven by wishful thinking or by ideology. Rather, they were the result of pragmatic considerations, of negotiations, <coughs> and of compromises between governments acting in the best interest of their people. One can always, with the benefit of hindsight, speculate whether one or the other decision was perfect <coughs> or should have been taken differently. Once again, I cannot see how European politics is different in this regard from any other area of political decision-making. <coughs> Most European countries agree that European integration is their best chance to compete economically and politically in an increasingly globalized world. Another popular concern is the alleged goal of a European superstate. Let me persuade you, however, that on this count a difference of principle does not exist. It's true that people have occasionally used the phrase of the United States of Europe in an affirmative sense. I never, I never adopted it myself, but formulations apart, the establishment of a European state is a policy goal Nobody serious, seriously envisages. 
It has always been the principle of European integration that the sovereignty of the nation state remains fundamental. Given how deeply enshrined this principle is in many constitutions and political traditions all over Europe, I cannot see how anyone would in earnest plan to move beyond it. All European agreements are technically pacts between sovereign nation states. The latter are and remain the ultimate political subjects. What then is the origin of this subject, of this, this suspicion? I believe it's due to the singular character of the EU as an institution. It's neither a mere alliance of nations for a national nor a federal state. Member states have ceded sovereignty to it. And I may add, this has been necessary and more may not be necessary. To understand the EU, one needs to think imaginatively and accept that it is a sui generis entity. Trying to classify the alternative into categories like federal state versus common market between individual nation, nation states is not helpful. Historically, national sovereignty has been a cherished principle of European statehood. Is not then the demand to cede sovereignty to a supranational body ultimately tantamount to the creation of a European nation state? Colin Crouch, who for many years taught at Warwick University, has succinctly, succinctly explained the situation. He argues that there is no contradiction between national sovereignty and European integration. The alternative to, Europe, to European integration, he writes, is not a return to national sovereignty, but the submission to global economics, economies dominated, dominated by the networks of other states over which Europe has no influence. In other words, and I could not agree more with Krauss, with Crouch, those who oppose Europe in the interest of their national independence will find that there are other forces in our globalized market economy which are far more dictatorial because they know of no voting mechanisms that alone vetoes. It's therefore, to cite Grouch again, Europe had ultimately secures our national autonomy. While I agree that much of the opposition of Europe's political integration is based on misconceptions, I would like to reiterate that a certain amount of skepticism towards European institutions is perfectly justified. A tendency to centralize power exists, and where it operates without proper control, it's dangerous. Ceding power to Brussels is not the apocalyptic scenario some opponents of European integration perceive, but neither it is a means that in itself moves the European project forward. It must be linked to real reform of European institutions, so as to guarantee that powers are exercised judiciously and in accordance with democratic principles. This reform should, in my view, include the introduction of more democratic participation of the electorate across Europe. If there is more power, there must be more accountability. One important element of such democratization of Europe could be the election by popular vote of the President of the European Commission. It would give a face to the political unification of Europe and I would allow a successful candidate to build real power. <coughs> I am aware, of course, that this is not going to happen tomorrow. More immediate plans, however, concern partly European lists for elections to the European Parliament. 
plans for this have been drawn up and with some luck can be introduced in time for the next election in 2014. Perhaps you will allow me to add at this point a few words about the UK as part of the European Union. I'm fully aware that Britain more than other European countries is currently going through a process of reflection about its relationship with its European partners. I understand and respect that this is a discussion that must primarily take place in Britain. However, the United Kingdom has also been part of the European community since 1973. Most major European developments since then have benefited from its British participation. Many leading figures in European institutions have been British. Someone is sitting close to me. <laughs> so we fellow Europeans have our own vested interest in the future role of the UK and the EU. Let me say first of all that I understand that changes in the British situation within the EU have partly happened simply because of the increased importance the group of 17 Euro members has taken on in the course of the crisis. Other EU members outside the common currency have experienced a similar development. But unless I am mistaken, the skeptical voices have been, become particularly strong here. Fundamental doubts about the wisdom of European integration and especially the common currency appear to dominate the national debate. The option of a referendum about Britain's future in Europe does no longer seem far-fetched and whatever its results, the mere fact of such a referendum, even the fact that it is seriously considered, is indicative for a growing tide of Euroscepticism. I would like to make three brief comments about Britain and Europe. My first is that Europe needs the United Kingdom. There are, there are various reasons why this is the case. Britain is one of the Europe's strongest, most innovative economies. London is the financial capital of Europe. So Britain, Europe is connected with the English-speaking world. I could easily extend this list, but would prefer to make a somewhat different point. I have been speaking here today about visions for Europe. Europe needs a vision if it is going to have a future. We need fundamental agreement, but it's also important to have an ongoing and critical debates about, about the best way forward. It's only such a competition of ideas that will secure our success. In my view, the British voice is sorely needed in this competition of ideas. It may seem facile today to bring up this country's long and successful story of democracy and parliamentarism. Do not other countries by now have long-established democratic cultures too? They do, but within European approaches to political as well as economic ideas, Britain still often represents its own special way, and I firmly believe Europe would be the poorer without this input in our, to our debates. Britain should retain and regain a place at the center of Europe, because this will be good for the European Union. My second comment is, that Europe is also good for Britain. The nation is still safe in the EU. I fear this is not always fully recognized. Some in the British media prefer to think of Europe as a major burden. <coughs> Perhaps it's something our two countries have in common. However, this is in, in best on the one side of a complex truth and arguable less than that. About a month ago, the Polish foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, gave the Blenheim Palace speech only a few miles from here. In this speech, he enumerated no fewer than eight 
British myth about the European Union. They range from the misleading claims that British trade with other parts of the world is more important than its European trade to often cited prejudices about European institutions and their impact on Britain and to the rather specific complaint that allegedly new proposals for EU pesticides legislation would ban gardeners from using coffee grounds to tackle slugs. <laughs> the latter is a good example for the surprising willingness of parts of the media in Britain and elsewhere to invent incriminating claims against the European Union. But it also shows that the large proportion of the population are ready to believe such claims regardless of their factual basis. More important than that myth is, however, the Koski points out are the far hard facts that make EU membership attractive for the UK. Like Colin Grouchy argues that the freedom gained by leaving is wiped out by the resulting loss of influence on the global level. Ultimately, the EU is beneficial to the UK, both economically and politically. And my third comment, therefore, is that we should try to work this out together. The British people will have to come to a considered view about its future in Europe. I am convinced that when all is said and done, they will come to the pragmatic conclusion that it is in their own best interest to stay in, be part of, and influence the European project. After all, this is why the United Kingdom decided to join in 1973. Let's be optimistic and hope that the 40th anniversary of this momentous decision in the more recent history of your country will coincide with a renewed commitment to the ideas of an ever closer union of the European peoples. Equally important, however, is that everybody in Europe needs to keep thinking about the future shape of our economic and political union. The noise created by the currency crisis has distracted us from this task but it has also made it clear how urgent such a clarification is. I should hope that when we sit down for a full discussion of our visions for Europe's future, Britain will play a vital part in those debates. Germany, at any rate, is fully and irrevocably committed to a common future in Europe, and will do all it takes to make it a success. One of the great institutions in British culture is the obituarian. Today, the UK has become the leading market for obituaries on the Euro and on European integration more generally. <coughs> Reading a certain pink paper, I note that even Germans, always eager to export, have started catering to this niche. Let me end this lecture by saying to all involved, I am convinced this is not a sustainable business model. Thank you very much. <laughs>
um, opening um, the discussion to the to the lecture theatre. Um, the the first question which we reflect on is this: uh, When um, the euro was being sold to the German electorate, one of the arguments for it was that it would promote greater convergence between Europe's economies. Uh, and we know what happened. Far from greater convergence, um, there was greater divergence with, uh, I think, in the first 10, 10 years or so of the euro, um, the prices of domestically produced goods in Germany going up 9%, in Greece 67%, in Spain and Portugal over 50%, in Italy over 40%. Um, and now, presumably, the objective is to promote that convergence, which we didn't see before, as rapidly as possible. And while not assuming that the markets will only be satisfied when there is perfect convergence, plainly, there is somewhere between where we are now um, and uh, where we would uh, like to be for a full convergence which will satisfy the markets. But it's some way off. And in the interim, German taxpayers and Dutch and Finns and others are presumably going to have to bail out the weaker economies for the lack of convergence. How long do you think that can last? And how long do you think governments in the weaker economies can persuade their electorates to go on um, with uh, policies of austerity, which are already creating in some countries increasing extremism in politics. <coughs> you, are, you are right in mentioning of course, I agree uh, that when we created uh, the euro and we tried to convince what was not an easy task in, 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 in German discussion, as you may remind, uh, that it would be the right decision, one argument was increasing greater convergence. And I think this was the very reason of a lot of uh, political leaders in other member states as well. And by the way, one of the, in, in my understanding, one of the major reasons of the crisis is that um, they forgot that uh, they, uh, a, a, a common uh, a currency uh, increases the pressure on productivity and competitiveness. Therefore, of course, if it would work, it would enhance uh, uh, greater convergence. But it doesn't work because they forgot they enjoyed low interest rates, and they forgot uh, to to increase and, and uh, to to work on competitive. Therefore, any uh, program which we agreed for uh, member states which uh, uh, get assistance by the European uh, facility uh, uh, financing facility mechanism, EFSF and now ESM, uh, and not only to uh, adopt uh, measures for. Uh, uh, correcting their fiscal policy, but 
also have to go for structural reforms to enhance competitiveness for the KPD. That is, without, without this, it will not work. By the way, if <laughs> the best example, how a common currency uh, make pressure on, on competitiveness is the history of the German reunification. If you, if you remember that uh, for the economy of the former GDR was in every statistics, so far my, my respect for statistics and economists was number 11 in the world <laughs> up to the fall of the Berlin Wall, number 11 in the world. When we introduced, on behalf of the strong desire of the population in the GDR, the Deutsche, the Deutsche Mark in the currency from the Federal Republic in the GDR on the 1st of July, all industrial production of GDR was not competitive. It was over. It was ended. It's very And this story has not been taken by, by a lot of our member states. So, therefore, we have to work on this. That's true. I, I, you, you see, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, answering your, your question how long you, we will sustain in, in, in convincing the German public that it, uh, we have to pay. My argument for German public is the most advantage is for Germany from the, because the, the competitive, the, the relative competitive member states enjoy a common currency. And the other have, therefore, it's in the very best interest of Germany to defend the common currency. It's a good argument. And we are not without any success. In the non-European members, in, in the non-successful uh, member states, it's a little bit different. I think some member states have really understood. I think the actual, the Monti government of, of Italy has really understood. By the way, Monti knows very well, better than most people in Europe, what is needed for a competitive economy. And uh, there is a chance to, to, for, for Italy to, to increase its position in productivity and competitiveness. The new Spanish government does. The Irish government, Ireland does. Portugal, the new Spanish, the new Portuguese government is telling the public, the Prime Minister has said it publicly, he would not be interested in lower interested. Because as soon as interest rates in Portugal go down, they will not achieve <laughs> decisions on reform, structural reforms they need to, in, to increase it. If you look at the, that's my argument towards public opinion, and uh, now you can judge yourself how long it will work <laughs> to answer your question. My, um, if you look at, the, at developments in the globalized world, and sometimes even for Europeans it's very helpful to look on the world outside. Uh, you see how how fast how fast the, uh, uh, there are changes and how strong the, the pressure on competitiveness is ongoing, ongoing. If we will not deliver in, in, in the what is needed in Europe, we will fail in the in the global markets uh, even even sooner, even faster than in, in Europe. Therefore. I have to tell this, uh, uh, the, uh, the sovereigns in, in, in uh, member states which suffer a lot of problems, uh, that they need it in their very own interest. And of course, we have to help them uh, to overcome. How long will it work? 
I will not give an answer in the, in the, in the concrete figure of, of years. That would not be a good idea for a finance minister. Uh, but as long as we can tell them we are making progresses, I think we, we, we have an, 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 a good chance uh, to, to, to be uh, successful. And if you look at uh, even at the outcome of elections, look at the last elections in, in, in autonomous regions like Galicia in, in Spain, very good outcome. Uh, totally in contrast to the to the to the uh, uh, pictures we got in TV from demonstrations in in, in Spain, the regional election and was was a support for for Rajoy government. <coughs> I am quite optimistic what's going on in Italy. If you look at Greece, it's quite interesting. I think it was, a, in my opinion, it was a, 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 a very critical decision to go for new elections in, in March. After the election in March, they, they were not able to build a government which could stick to, to even to negotiations to what is needed for a new program for Greece. Then they had to, to go for another, for new elections. It was a, 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 a source of huge contagion for other Euro member states, by the way. But after a, a second new elections in June, they got a, they got a, a, good, a government which was able to, uh, and it's, it's more engaged and more reliable, what, whatever this means, and more reliable than ever any government before in the last year. For if it's not, uh, uh, I think populations do understand it's critical, but it, it, it may work. Of course, we have to come, to come forward the step by step. And we have to use the momentum of the crisis because we will get uh, substantial changes in Europe. We always, we only get, and that is not new in European history, only in times of crisis. And therefore, there's a huge chance to get advantages. But up to now, we we we, we can manage it. Doesn't Even look at look at uh, the result of the, uh, the last election in Netherlands. Yeah. By the way, you have a lot of proof or incentives. Just let me ask you one uh, other shorter question, which um, is uh, part of the British reflection. <coughs> those of us who are regarded by the right-wing populist press as being complete Euro fanatics do worry about um, one issue, which is this. Plainly, it is hugely in this country's interest that the Eurozone crisis is satisfactorily resolved. It would make a lot of difference to our own economic prospects. We worry that the only way that that crisis can be resolved through the establishment of a fiscal union would involve changes in the European Union, which it would be extremely difficult for this country to accept, for example, ceding power over the budget in some of its particulars to Brussels or to an official mm. in Brussels. Difficult to imagine the Assemblée Nationale um, uh, taking kindly to being um, told what to do with their budget or their taxes by a, a Finnish commission, but I suppose stranger things have happened. But in this country, it will go right to the heart of our 
um, national narrative about the relationship between democracy and voting supply and determining tax and spend. So the worry that we have is that resolving the euro crisis satisfactorily creates a European Union which we would have a lot of difficulty persuading our democracy to be part of. Do you have any um, words that will comfort us on that particular <laughs> point? <laughs> As maybe it's a problem, but in the, in the last couple of, 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 of years in this crisis, during the crisis, we have carefully had in mind that we want, do not want to widen the gap between the 70 members of the currency as a monetary union and the other 10 member states of the <coughs> European Union. When we, when we decided, I give some examples, when we decided uh, in, in the early 2010, to go for a Van Rompuy task force. What was, by the way, under the presidency of the Van, Van, Van Rompuy, the finance ministers of the member states, to make proposals for what can be, to strengthen the... It was, Van Rompuy task force was 27 uh, uh, European finance ministers, or the Czech Republic was represented not by the finance minister, but 27 European ministers. Not only 17. We had, and, and the British finance minister take take part in all discussions. We did not say we want to, 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 when we made the fiscal compact, which by the way we would have uh, preferred to have as an amendment of the treaty. As a limited amendment not needed for a convention, the European Convention would have not, that has been already uh, discussed with Parliament and Commission, and even the same French president, who was not in favor from the very beginning of a new, of a new <laughs> amendment of the treaty, because he had taken a major risk, Nicolas Sarkozy had taken a major risk in campaigning for the presidency when he said he will not go for another referendum. And his both opponents have said, yes, we will go for another referendum. And we wouldn't have the Lisbon Treaty without another referendum, without another referendum in France, by the way, therefore. Uh, uh, I can uh, I could understand why Nicolas Sarkozy was so reluctant to a treaty amendment. He said in his in my political lifetime, never again. And then he agreed, yes, we will go. And then surprise, uh, the British government asked was not un was not acceptable by the way, and therefore we had to go it in a non in 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 other way by the way. 25 member states signed. And as soon as uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, time of uh, President uh, Klaus will be ended, even the Czech Republic will sign, then you are the only member state who will not part of the fiscal treaty. Therefore, this question is a, is a question to the UK as well. But I think the most, uh, the most arg the argument for the few British people which are not pro-European, the very few, the, the most argument is that the Eurozone is not well-functioning. The better we solve the Eurozone, the more convincing that will, I hope so, will be even for British uh, 
discussions. We will do whatever, whatever, what, what is needed, uh, whatever, what is possible, not to widen the gap. But of course, you are, you are right. There is a dilemma. Strengthening the euro uh, will will request some progress, and I am optimistic that at the end. Europe will be stronger than before, before the crisis. But uh, the British have been always realistic, pragmatic, and very wise. <laughs> Therefore, we trust in the wisdom of the British people. <laughs> yeah, certainly.